January 1st, 1864, New Year's Day. A very beautiful day. The sun is shining brightly. May the future of the South be as bright and glorious. My first act was to read several chapters in my Bible. May he who rules all things be my guide and guardian during the incoming as he has been during the past year. And may my conduct prove myself worthy of his gracious protection. May he preserve all of my dearly loved friends and relatives and allow me to meet them many times in the future. And so wrote Robert Park of the 12th Alabama, January 1st, 1864, in the new year. On this episode of Campfire Chatter, I want to discuss religion and the importance of religion to the men of the Army of Northern Virginia. So without any further ado, we're going to discuss two of the major revivals, some of the splits among the denominations, as well as hear from some of the soldiers themselves. But I wanted to talk about religion in the sense as a motivating factor as well among Confederate soldiers. So the two major revivals I was discussing occurred in the winter of 1862-63 and in the winter of 1863-64, the time when Robert Park was writing. And there's copious amounts of letters and diaries written by soldiers describing conversions, baptisms, uh, meetings, preaching, going to preaching, sermons, and things like that. Sometimes they would even include the text of the sermon that a pastor was talking about. Um, but the two major revivals signify that the Army of Northern Virginia was one of the more religious armies in American history. Um, Civil War armies in general were very religiously oriented, but the Army of Northern Virginia was a little bit different because they, like I said, had these two large revivals where you had widespread conversions, protestations of faith. When you read the letters and diaries of these men, they mention trusting God and having faith that God will see them through, keep them alive, take care of their friends and family back home, but also to help win the war. And that was a very large motivating factor. A couple of historians have written about that element in their studies of Civil War soldiers or Civil War in general. Jason Phillips, in his book, Die Hard Rebels, The Confederate Culture of Invincibility, looked to what these diehard Confederate soldiers in 1864 and 1865, why they were still fighting. And he argued that there were several reasons which contributed to their sustained motivation. One of them was religion, that it was used, religion was used as an explanation for why the Confederacy might be losing. Uh, Many soldiers wrote about sin, sin in the country, the sin of slavery, sin in general, pride, speculators, things like that, to why, try to explain why they were losing at a specific time. And on the other side, they would also use religion at, to explain why they were winning, that God was on our side, that we have a righteous cause and things like that. So Phillips argues that religion was used as a sustaining motivating factor among late war Confederate soldiers in order for them to continue fighting that God would protect them and their families and properties, so they might as well continue to fight. George C. Rabel, in his series, it was a lecture series, but it was published under the title Damn Yankees. Basically, he shows how the different ways that Confederates demonized Northerners or Yankees throughout the war and how that built up their motivation and sustained them as well in many cases. And treating the Confederates would look at Yankees as barbarians and subhuman some cases, using Irish and German immigrants and black soldiers. And then in terms of religion, again, it's the God is on our side. Why would God favor an army or a cause like the Northern cause, which is occupied by mercenaries and 
barbarians who make war on women and destroy property and things like that of that nature. So you can see how religion and religion has always been used by governments and people and soldiers and throughout all of history to say God is on our side. We have, we have the righteous side and the civil war was no different. The army of Northern Virginia was no different. So I also wanted to talk about some of the denominational splits and some of the different types of religious belief in the army of Northern Virginia. Catholicism was not as widespread in the South as it was in the North. Some of your Irish, French, Immigrés uh, were practicing Catholics, so you see a lot of that in some of the Louisiana units in the Army of Northern Virginia, as they had a lot of Italian, Irish, French, different types of European Roman Catholic cultures in Louisiana, especially New Orleans. And also in Maryland, you had Catholicism was semi-widely practiced there as well. It's kind of how the colony was founded anyway. Um, but you also had Germanic kind of Baptist-type denominations that were conscientious objectors like the Mennonites, the Brethren, the Dunkers, groups like that. In particular, in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, you had quite a large population of Mennonites and Brethren who were opposed to not only secession and slavery, but also to the Civil War and fighting in general, being an offshoot of the Quakers. I think it's almost very similar to that as well. And another interesting thing that I found in my own research was that there were some of these denominations sent missionaries to the Army of Northern Virginia, not just uh, chaplains, but actual missionaries, evangelists, and things like that. And Wake Forest College, which is now Wake Forest University in North Carolina, um, was a Baptist-oriented school, and they actually sent and supported Baptist missionaries to the Army of Northern Virginia, specifically North Carolina troops. So you have a lot of different activity going on among the different denominations. Now back to the Mennonites and the Brethren, it was interesting because in 1862, Stonewall Jackson heard their petitions not to fight, and in many cases he used them, Mennonites or conscientious objectors, as teamsters, ambulance people, wagon drivers, things like that, just to keep them out of combat, but also make use of them to the service of the Confederate States of America. But in many cases, many of these Mennonites and brethren would resist, would resist conscription, and would run away. They would run into Western Virginia, or now West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, places like that, to escape having to serve. And there were, we don't know the actual statistics, but there could be possibly thousands of them. So religion obviously played a role in their decision not to fight with the Army of Northern Virginia. But this is also reflective of some of the major splits among the denominations that occurred before the war started. Uh, you have the Baptist church splitting, the Methodist church splitting, and the Presbyterian church splitting over, over slavery, over sectionalism, over state sovereignty, whatever. But they split. And you have some well-known Presbyterians like Stonewall Jackson and others as well, and then you also have more aristocratic Episcopalians like Lee, but even for them, religion played a central part in their lives, so the Army of Northern Virginia was very much a religious, in many ways, whether they fought for the Army or merely drove a wagon, in many cases, the Army was a very religious organization. So I'm going to read another another letter from another soldier, um, written at the same time that Park wrote in his diary. 
Uh, the le- the letter is illegible, has an illegible date and location, but it's likely late 1863, early 1864 during that winter. And it was written by Calvin Leach. He was a private in Company B, 1st North Carolina Regiment of State Troops. And this letter I'm about to read is taken from a collection of his writing, of his letters and diaries found at the Southern Historical Collection at Wilson Library at the University of North Carolina. But in, in the letter, he writes different things that most soldiers wrote about during the wintertime, requesting clothes from home, things of that nature, um, speculation on what would happen, what the Yankees were doing, and things like that. So, But he also wrote about religion, and I'm going to read a little bit of that. So from Calvin Leach, 1st North Carolina. Yesterday was fast day, and it was observed by some of the soldiers. I hesitated some whether I would fast or not. When I come to the conclusion, it was as needful to serve the Lord in camp as it was anywhere else. The day came, I tried to fast and pray as well as I could. Me and Joe Price was the only one that fasted in my mess, and I found it was delightful to serve the Lord in camp as well as anywhere else. I try to read my Bible and pray as well, but I can't, but it as I can, but it seems I cannot serve him as I should wish amid so much confusion, people around me cursing, swearing, etc. I cannot enjoy myself as I should wish. Since I left home, I went through another dreadful conflict, which the Lord delivered safe once more to his great name, be all the glory. I feel that the Lord protected me in time of battle when I went in with, when I went in, went praying and continued to pray during the fight. I would pull down my ball and call on the Lord to help us and then raise up and fire. When I shot all my bullets away, I then continued to pray, thinking the rest could do the shooting, and I would do the praying. I hope you will continue to pray for me, that I may do my duty as a soldier and as a Christian. I often pray for you all, and I find I can retire to pray in secret as well in Virginia as I could in Wilkes, which is the county in North Carolina, or anywhere else. Let us all be faithful and do all the good we can while we live in this world of sorrow. So we see a lot here that we can unpack. Leach could have possibly been trying to reassure his mother that he was living a Christian life, trying to read his Bible and pray. He also refers to an announcement by Jeff Davis announcing fast and prayer humiliation, which was a common occurrence in the Civil War, especially among the Confederates. So Leach is obviously struggling with his ability to maintain his practicing his religion amid, amid as, as what he was he called, quote, People around me cursing, swearing, etc. The etc. probably is gambling, drinking, uh, still going on. Not every soldier in the Army of Northern Virginia was a teetotaling, Bible carrying soldier and professor of faith, but many were, and they found it hard to continue doing so as Leach did when you have this constant sinful ways going on. So, you know, also too, you can see how it was interesting that Leach writes that in the middle of action while he's firing his weapon that he's each time he rams a mini ball in his musket he's praying for to god for protection and every time he fires he keeps praying and praying and praying so it's very interesting and it kind of illustrates how devout a lot of these men were and there's copious examples on in northern letters and diaries as well so it's a very religious time in this time of america so i want to turn now to a recent conversation i had with a former professor of mine, his name is Stephen Longenecker at Bridgewater College. He's the Edwin L. Turner Distinguished Professor of History at Bridgewater College. He's also author of several books, most recently Gettysburg Religion, Refinement, Diversity, and Race in the Antebellum and Civil War Border North, published by Fordham University Press in 2013, and also Shenandoah Religion, Outsiders in the Mainstream, 1716 to 1865, 
by Baylor University Press, and that came out in 2002. And Steve Longenecker is a well-regarded religious historian, um, particularly the Civil War era. So I recently sat down with him in his office, catching up on old times, but also to discuss uh, religion in the Civil War, particularly the Army of Northern Virginia, how chaplains operated in the Army, and to discuss his upcoming war- manuscript that he's been working on about the post-war lives of Confederate chaplains, and we discussed some of those things. So here's my conversation with Steve. All right, I'm sitting here with Dr. Stephen Longenecker, history professor at Bridgewater College. And Dr. Longenecker, we're going to talk about the role chaplains played in the Army of Northern Virginia and also some of your current work that you're working on right now. So what were some of the roles that chaplains played in the Confederate Army in general? Uh, Chaplains uh, performed a variety of uh, functions uh, they preached, uh, they led religious services. Um, during battles, uh, they often served as medics and worked in hospitals. Uh, on occasion, they received responsibility for, um, for removing wounded or for running ambulances. Um, in some ways, they had the same position as officers, same respect as officers. They were more officers than enlisted. And so, uh, so they were given some responsibility. They wrote letters for the wounded. They, they listened to them. They baptized them and, and uh, listened to their last prayers. Mm. Performed, a, yeah, they just generally worked in hospitals and did the kind of work that uh, everybody else did in hospitals. Great. So being here in the Shenandoah Valley, do you know of any brethren or Mennonite chaplains to the army considering that they were you know conscientious objectors and opposed to war were there have you found any mennonite or brethren chaplains that served in a variety of positions maybe in the army uh, no <laughs> no no that just um way beyond the uh vision or way beyond the perspective of anybody at that time. So what are some important chaplains that historians should be aware of that you've come across in your research that served various times in the army? Well, I'm not sure that very many chat that one chaplain is more important than the other, except for maybe J. William Jones, who wrote about chaplains after the war Hmm. and uh, served uh, Lee and Jackson more or less as the coordinator of the uh, of the chaplains. Other than that, there's, you know, there's some who became uh, interesting and maybe important after the war, uh, but a lot of them seem uh, more in the same level rather than some stick out and some don't. Yeah. So was J. William Jones, was he, would you kind of say, would he, was he the uh, chief chaplain, I guess, of the Army of Northern Virginia on Lee's staff, or he's definitely, it sounds like he's a higher, higher. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah, Jones seems uh, maybe first among equals. Or, yeah. Okay. Can you tell me about your current project? Um, I know we've discussed before about your post-war, looking at post-war Confederate chaplains. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, yeah. My uh, current research project is uh, former chaplains during Reconstruction. And I'm comparing their uh, religion with their politics. Part of this is about the lost cause. And chaplains have a um, an image, uh, a stereotype, a conventional approach as preachers of the lost cause. They were uh, prominent in lost cause celebrations. 
And so I'm looking to see if that side of them is consistent with other parts of their lives. Did they take the lost cause with them into the pulpit, hmm. for example? You know, the lost cause is pretty conservative. And I wonder if uh, chaplains were uniformly conservative uh, throughout their lives or if maybe there's a little different uh, aspect to them. So are you also, as part of this, are you also looking at kind of their changing loyalties, how they went from loyal to the Confederacy or to their state, and then how they reconciled that afterwards? Is, is there any kind of national loyalty involved and in how they changed once the war was over? Now, the question is perhaps whether they were uh, not quite as conservative in their theology mm. or maybe, maybe inconsistent. Moses Hogue uh, um, dedicated a big statue to Jackson, and he suggested that Jackson was pure. Well, Moses Hogue was also a uh, Calvinist Presbyterian, and they don't believe in purity in anybody in any time or in any <laughs> shape. And so somehow he found a way to bring that word into his discussion of Jackson, but never mention it about anybody in the pulpit. That's interesting because Jackson was a Presbyterian. Do you think it's mm-hmm. merely because the two of them were both Presbyterians? That's why the uh, the purity of his soul got thrown in there? Well, I think Hogue got carried away with the emotion of the lost cause and with the Jackson worship. And on that day, he wore one hat and it was a different hat than uh, what he normally uh, what he what he normally wore. Yeah. So what kind of arguments are you making in the book? Um, you discussed their, their theology versus their politics. Um, what, so what specific arguments are you making? Well, there's a couple of arguments. One is we're just getting a, a sharper focus on uh, former chaplains mm-hmm. who are an important part of uh, the lost cause and uh, Confederate memory. So we just get a fuller picture of them. I also have some things to say about the lost cause. And my take on the Lost Cause is that it was a broad umbrella movement that served a variety of functions. It it uh, explained the tragedy. I mean, Southerners just needed an explanation for how that that great cause of theirs turned into total disaster. And on Memorial Days, they just need a way to... Uh, uh, bomb the psychic wound. Other people see the lost cause as perhaps uh, backward-looking social conservatives who think that uh, modern society has just totally gone down the drain and the lost cause could help them too. The lost cause could just help people on community occasions on Decoration Day and then, and then they move on into the New South. Mm. Can you believe that the old is best? And that the best is yet to come. Uh, Yeah, people did that, and they fell under the uh, Lost Cause movement. Uh, Some argue that the Lost Cause was a tool to um, uh, repudiate Reconstruction-era politics. And uh, yeah, people did that, too. I mean, that's that's under the Lost Cause. So is it it close to the heart and soul of Southerners? Well, for some. Um, Is it just something you do on Decoration Day? Um, yeah, that works too. That works too. So it's a broad umbrella movement. So what role did religion play 
in the Lost Cause movement. We know in the during the Civil War era, Southerners, Confederates especially, wanted to believe that this was the will of God. Every defeat or every victory was providence, the will of God. Um, how did they reconcile defeat in, with the Lost Cause movement in terms of religion? Okay, well, uh, the, the religious component of the Lost Cause was uh, the stereotype that uh, Confederates were more religious than uh, than the other side, that uh, the typical Confederate soldier was a born-again evangelical. And um, it's true that uh, the Army of Northern Virginia, which is your specialty, um, was more religious than most armies in other times and places, but the Lost Cause exaggerated the religious um, behavior in uh, in these armies. So what type of methodology did, did you use? What what sources were you using to when you're in your research for this project? Okay, well I'm I need to find uh, the religious expressions of these people and that tends to be uh, printed sermons. I've also used manuscript sermons and then uh, you know letters and um, denominational records, church records, uh, a wide variety of what else is available, but mostly I've read a lot of sermons for this project. So we've talked a little bit about the lost cause. So what specific roles did chat these post these Confederate ex Confederate chaplains play in the development of Confederate symbology in the Reconstruction era? Well, they played uh, a variety of roles. Uh, a few of them became spokespersons for the uh, lost cause movement. And maybe I should have mentioned that the earlier question you asked, too, is particularly important. Uh, Randolph McKim, who uh, wound up at a at an Episcopal parish a couple blocks from the White House, spoke at reunions. He spoke at, uh, at uh, what's now Washington and Lee on an important uh, Lee commemoration day. Uh, he published books to uh, defend the overwhelming numbers argument. So and so, some of these chaplains were just critical in the lost cause movement. On a different level, some of them offered they offered prayers or orations at the unveiling of monuments. It's quite common to have a chaplain when a monument was uh, was was uh, dedicated, and some of them are uh, conspicuously silent. That's hmm. you know, with silence, you wonder if the record isn't there or they were silent because they. Uh, didn't really buy into the situation, but some of them are conspicuously silent. These are articulate people silent on this one issue, so it gets your attention. So you mentioned McKim, and he was a, an officer, military officer during the Civil War. Have you found any other soldiers who specifically served as soldiers who ended up becoming pastors, preachers after the war and got involved in their new found? Um, career as lost cause advocates or whatever they were doing. Have you come across any other ones, any other ex-soldiers like that? Yeah, that's a trend of people moving from uh, uh, from active duty into into a chaplaincy. William Porsche DuBose did that. And uh, you mentioned uh, Randolph McKim. Uh, Lachlan Vass was another uh, yeah officer, I think, who uh, became a chaplain toward toward the end of the war. You might also be interested to know that uh, there weren't very many who made it all the way through. There's a coming and a going here. And uh, for someone to move from 
active duty to a chaplaincy seems uh, seems reasonable and, and it fits within larger patterns. So what kind of patterns are you referencing? Yeah, I'm not sure how many survived the entire war. I'm, I'm, I know there are some who served the duration, but it'd be interesting to know how many how many were able to pull that off. Do you think a, a lot of that, we see that with the Army of Northern Virginia, at two different occasions you have a very large revival going on. Do you think that the impact of war, death, destruction, do you think that might have played a role in some of these men deciding to take up the ministry after the war or even during the war? Uh, they said they thought they could serve the cause better through a chaplaincy. Um, they tended to be... Uh, junior officers, uh, lieutenants, whether uh, they were repulsed by what they had seen. Yeah, that get, that's a thought. Uh, you, you wonder about that, but they tended not to comment on that. Hmm. So we mentioned McKim and Moses Hogue and a couple others. Were there any other profound individuals that you came across in your research that just struck you as, wow, that's an interesting story? And if so, what were those stories? Okay, yeah, well, most of the stories are interesting. Uh, one of them was uh, a temperance advocate. Well, most of them were temperance advocates, but he died an alcoholic. He caught a tropical disease in Mexico City, took alcohol for medicinal purposes, and uh, and uh, one thing led to another, and then it was his uh, demise. Interesting. Let's see. The question was about interesting persons. Uh, William Porche Dubose became theologian with uh, some international acclaim. He was. Uh, at um, University of the South, uh, Suwannee, Tennessee, and uh, published uh, thick theological texts. Oh, Elsie Vass in uh, in um, New Bern, North Carolina, had some uh, northern occupiers uh, who were paying pew rents in his congregation, and a um, visiting pastor offered a prayer for Jefferson Davis, who was in prison at that time, and uh, whole place blew up and Vass is trying to put the church back together again including uh uh his uh biggest biggest donors so yeah there's a there's a lot of interesting people here what would be the overall significance um not only to your project but to our understanding of the post-war lives the reconstruction lives of these men these chaplains what what is the uh, significance of their post-war lives yeah what's the what's the significance of our understanding of about them, of, of learning about them in their post-war lives? What, what does that tell us about um, broader Civil War era, Reconstruction era? Well, the, chapl- the chaplains uh, make a couple points. Uh, they make the point about the lost cause that I mentioned earlier, that there's a variety of uses uh, for the lost cause. Like most popular movements, it's a, it's a broad tent. But the chaplains also illustrate some basic human uh, behaviors, uh, you know, they're not entirely intellectually consistent. They can believe uh, one thing, or they can be liberal in one part of life and conservative in another part of life, and it seems just just fine. Whether that's uh, a flaw or just how people are built, you know, I'm not quite sure, but they certainly illustrate the uh, the, the contradictions that we're probably all walking around with. And, uh, you know, your last question was just about who's interesting, and they certainly illustrate that there's a lot of interesting uh, facets in human life as well. Very true. Um, do you have any updates on your 
project with with the uh, any publication things that we can be aware of going forward no not quite i'm in the um i'm in the phase when the manuscript is almost finished uh but it still needs a little work so there are no articles coming out might be a might be a finished manuscript by the end of the summer and they're ready to shop it around to publishers. Okay, so we'll definitely keep our eyes open in the coming months and hopefully sooner than later. And Dr. Longenecker, I want to thank you for talking with me today. That was very interesting, and it definitely will get a better sense of these individuals as and their post-war lives as a result of your work. So thank you very much for sitting with me today. All right, thank you. Thank you for joining me today for Campfire Chatter. Um, be on the lookout for an official Campfire Chatter Facebook page soon. Uh, the Facebook page will be a place where listeners can engage with the show and myself, make comments about things that you like, would like to hear more of, and also there will be a place for discussion So, as well. So keep an eye on that for the, in the coming weeks. Uh, the podcast is still not available on Apple yet. I don't know why, but I'm still working on that end. And I will let you all know when it is available on Apple. But thanks again for joining me today. We will see you next week for another episode of Campfire Chatter.